Hello and welcome to Why'd You Buy That? I'm Drew and in this pod I get together with Dan and friend of the podcast Jessica Steele and we have a great conversation spurred by an article on Wallet Joy called The 7 Money Conversations You Must Have Before Marriage. And then after that, we talked to Sandra Merrill and Chris Zimmerman of Swell Advisors. They're a husband and wife team that manage a business together. And they also took a year and a half trip around the world on a budget, working jobs in different places as they traveled. And we talked to them about what they learned on their journey. And then finally, we get back together with Dan and Jessica. I get back together with Dan and Jessica, and we have a great rousing version of why'd you buy that it's really funny so stick around thanks for being here hello and welcome to why'd you buy that i'm drew adams i'm here with dan Seataller and jessica Steele, the steel maiden back hey guys hey hey so for this pod we decided we would talk about the seven must-have money conversations you need to have before getting hitched. Shout out to Wallet Joy. We are taking this from their blog post, and I thought it would be fun for us to kind of talk about these conversations. Now, I've been married 20 years. Dan, you've been... Uh, just 11. Yeah, just had our 11th anniversary. Yep. And Jess? Dating for almost nine years. What? But not married yet. <laughs> okay. All right. So just that's a little background for our listeners so they know what we're coming to the table with here as far as uh as far as these conversations and our different perspectives. So I'm gonna go through these seven things and I'd be interested to hear your guys' perspective on this. Dan, did you have these conversations before married? Jess, have you? Are you going to or already? Uh maybe preparation. I mean I don't in yeah. anticipation that an event might happen. I don't know if that's in the future for you, but <laughs> whether with this guy or someone else, I don't know. But yeah, so that's what we'll do. Does that sound good? Sounds good. Sounds great. Okay. So the first one is actually one of the more abstract ones, but I'll go. So number one on the list is money mindsets and overall beliefs. Okay. So this is the must-have conversation. And it says, what are your biggest financial successes or setbacks? What are some lessons you've learned about managing money? And what do you believe about money and the role it plays in your life? And that last one is a little bit like, okay, I'm not sure where that's going. But the biggest one is what are your biggest financial successes or setbacks? So for me personally, though, when I think about before I was married, my biggest financial successes or setbacks, I mean, I don't feel like I had that many to like say, yeah, I I really nailed it. I really save that huge, made that big purchase or what have you. I, I feel like they would have been much smaller things, but I'd be interested to know, Dan, did you have a, a big financial success that you shared with Anna before, before you yeah, got married? No, I, I'm in the same boat, really. I think, uh, you know, I got married when I was 21 and my wife was 22 and uh, hadn't even finished college yet. And so didn't, didn't have much financial history, right? And so not a ton to pull from there. What about you, Jess? I think the same. I feel like I always say relationships are either a startup or a merger. You know, you either mm, have kind yeah. of assets and baggage and things that you're, you know, maybe a little older and both bringing into it or you're, you meet young and like, yeah, I don't think I had a big philosophy on money or any great success. Um, you know, we were two kids in our early twenties when we first got together. So I don't, 
think we had much to bring to the table of how we'd managed money before meeting. I like that. Mm-hmm. Startup or a merger? Yeah. Yeah. I bet a startup is probably easier in a lot of cases. Merger, you've got your own kind of patterns like this is how I do it and this is how you do it. And then you, you have to make compromises and get to a middle ground where it, as if you don't have a lot of history, then it's just like you figure it out as you go and you kind of make those adjustments throughout your marriage, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So let's dive into number two here, which is your financial backgrounds. What kind of financial behavior did you see modeled growing up? And how did money impact your parents' relationship? Also, another bullet point here. How did your family's class or economic status affect your money beliefs? Or how are our financial histories similar or different? So you would ask this of your of your spouse. So I think this one's interesting because as I get older, the more I think that you can try to model the behaviors that you've seen in your life or you can react to them. And so... What you've seen, either reacting to something that happened bad in your history or trying to model something that you see it was good or that you picture as this is what success looks like, can influence you for a long time to come and how you perceive money. So do you see patterns in your family history that you are using in your current relationship And if so, did you think those were positives or negatives? And how do you build differentiation into that? I feel like this is a conversation that, you know, maybe not right away, but Adam and I definitely have talked about a lot because we kind of grew up with very different models of money um, coming from our parents. And some of that we want to model for ourselves or our kids, you know, down the line and some we know we do not want to repeat. So I feel like that that comes kind of back around a lot. And just speaking like for my own upbringing, my parents, they were, you know, definitely didn't have a, a lot of extra money, but were super careful with budgeting. I always, you know, could kind of see how they were weighing a big purchase or a vacation or something like that. And Adam grew up a little bit differently than that. Um, his dad is in real estate and, you know, he talks a lot about how they're kind of some boom years and then some bust years. And it was a little bit less steady than kind of what I was used to as a kid. And so we've kind of, you know, been through that. How, how do we want it to look for our kids or, you know, is he slipping into patterns that he saw? So I think it's really important to kind of together examine that, you know, a lot of habits we don't even realize were um, like are instilled in us and we're acting just like, you know, the cliche of like, you're turning into your father, you're turning into your mother, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's it's, Geico commercial. Yeah. It's it's important (laughs) to kind of dig all that up. (laughs) So if you don't mind me asking, if you did grow up in a household where there were boom years and bust years, how does that affect you after you grow up? Like, what do you see as a child that then, you know, I feel like for him, it's almost like if you've got cash in your pocket, it's like burning a hole in your pocket is kind of how I feel like, you know, in the, I'll say the boom years, you know, it felt like, oh, they had money, so they were going to spend it. Whereas instead of kind of carefully planning that out for what it would maybe need to last you if there was a downturn in the market or any of that. So that's kind of how I see it in him sometimes, you know, if, if there's a little bit of extra money, it feels like, well, we should spend it on something. Whereas I kind of definitely come from a more conservative, like, or maybe we should save it for a rainy day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, definitely. Cool. 
I think uh, sometimes it's hard to know exactly what kind of an imprint your parents left on you. You know, a couple of the things that comes to mind in this realm is, is how openly money is discussed and how that is either a comfortable topic or an uncomfortable topic. And I think in my house, like money wasn't discussed a lot, but I think that we always had enough. I, ne I never felt like we were rich, but I also never like had any question about whether or not we had enough money to get what we needed. And so I think that gave me kind of a stable perspective on money. And then also just my dad's career was fairly stable and had some successes. And, and so I, I think for me, that also affected kind of my own career path and, and my perspective on going to college and getting a stable job and making an income, which I think has, has been a good foundation for me as I've kind of figured out life. And now that, now that I've been married for 11 years and have a nine and seven year old and, and I've been working in in programming, you know, it's just a little different industry in a different world in terms of travel and the type of companies and the type of work that's available. And so I think there's also kind of new experiences that I've had since I've grown up that's shaped my perspective. Did that come out more as the marriage happened? Like, since we're talking about like these conversations before you get hitched, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. like, did you see your significant others, Anna's predispositions? And then we're like, Hey, how does mine merge with hers? Yeah, definitely. Or were they similar? No, I think we had kind of different different perspectives. Like for Anna, she she worked since she was young, like cleaning houses and earning money and was like fairly independent that way. But she has more of a perspective of what money can we spend? What's available to us to live life now? And she's less concerned about being worried for the future. And I'm much more conservative. And I'm like, well, you know, let, let's, let's just save this money. But it's actually been, I think, a, a good marriage, because it's kind of like loosened me up a little bit. And then obviously, kind of weekly came out of our relationship dynamic, where we have kind of two different perspectives going into it. And so I think there's been kind of some healthy growth for both of us. Okay, so the third is um, life and financial goals. What are your shared major life goals? Like, so like, <laughs> and does this include starting a family and how do these goals impact our lives, our careers, our incomes and our finances? I'm trying to like, <laughs> remember, like, I got to think back, right? Like you're, you're 21, you're married, you know, I was, I was 30. I'm, so it's like, let's sit down and share our major life goals. Like, is that a conversation that you had? Or was I, I it kind know. of intuitive? I, I don't know. It, for us, we I would say that we had some understanding that we wanted to have kids. Anna wanted to have kids like pretty soon, which which I was okay with, but sooner than I would have just guessed. Like I would have thought we'd maybe finish college or something first, but she <laughs> wanted to have kids pretty soon. And so but we were on the same page <laughs> with that. But outside of that, like we're just so young. And even looking back now with the experience I've had, it's like we just had no we just hadn't had the experiences to teach us what we really wanted to get in life. And so to me, the bigger question at the time and in retrospect was like, is this a person that I'm compatible with, that I can work with, that I can have difficult conversations with, that's going to take accountability for their actions, that's going to be willing to change and compromise. And so I think that was like really what set up the underpinnings for our discussion and we probably knew at the time, like, you know, it's just so hard to, we just don't have the experience. We don't know what's possible. Mm -hmm. 
How about you, Jess? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's a little bit different in that we have had all this time pre-marriage, I'll say, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to talk about these things. And I think for us, definitely living in New York plays a huge factor into what we see our future like. Like, you know, in suburbs, you're already probably buying a house at this point. Or, um, you know, for us, like how many bedrooms could we have makes a difference of how many kids we can realistically have Mm -hmm. in this city. Um, You know, our schools are so expensive, all of that kind of stuff. So we've definitely had a lot of, you know, talks over the years of how we see that playing out and kind of weighing what we feel is most important or, you know, what we want that life to look like. But I think, you know, Dan, to your point too, it's really finding someone who you think, okay, we can compromise along the way or we'll, um, you know, get to a shared end destination. Um, other than having that kind of all figured out at the very beginning, I, I don't think that we did, but kind of a figure it out as you go along a little bit. Yeah. Too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the fourth is talking about debts and credit history. What kinds of debts do you have? And what are the details for those accounts? <laughs> right. Those are good question. I the, think that is definitely one you want to ask. You want yeah. to get clear on for sure. Yeah. It's, it's part of the package deal, right? Yeah. And it can be hard. Like it's, it can be hard to share that data. Like this is what I owe. <laughs> Do you still yeah, want to marry me? Like, <laughs> Do you right. still want to? <laughs> I come with the price tag. <laughs> yeah. Or like credit yeah. scores, things like that. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. yeah. I feel like all of that has to be disclosed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's more like hard numbers than just like, what's your financial outlook or perspective. Right. It's like, yeah. And increasingly it's student loan debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like how much student loan debt. And, you know, I have to wonder if that's like goes into the calculation. I mean, there, there's a mental calculation of, well, this debt is going to take me this long to pay off. And am I going to wait to have kids until my debts are paid off, you know, or not? So do you think that that's a, a wise thing to wait for your student loans to be paid off before you have kids? Or do you think you should just jump in and and do it? No. I'd still be waiting. <laughs> I've got a nine-year-old. I, I don't think I'd want to start now, you know, <laughs> but that's just me. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think that it has to be mutually exclusive, I wouldn't say, but I think that probably depends more on what your the full financial picture is. You know, if you're like barely scraping it together to pay the student loan each month and maybe hold off a little bit on the kids. But, you know, I live in just such such an expensive place. So I, I don't think that it would have been possible at the very beginning for me to be paying all of those things at once and have a kid. But yeah, I feel like for us, it was student loan debt was the kind of one thing that we brought into the relationship, both of us carrying, you know, there wasn't a lot of other history. I don't think Adam barely had any credit when we first got together. So, you know, there wasn't anything negative necessarily, but there wasn't a lot positive either um start from scratch and yeah yeah i definitely we made the choice of not waiting for student loan debt to be paid off before we went for the kids like because i mean your biological window is shorter (laughs) like it's like you have this window to have kids and if you're gonna have some you better go ahead and get that done and and then i just had faith that we'd figure out as careers progressed more money started coming in that we would pay down that student loan debt. And, uh, that worked out luckily. Um, all right. Spending and saving habits. Number five here. How much are you earning and what portion of that are you saving? Yeah. 
That was like so hard to save in those early years. I remember it was like, good God, like everybody needs something at this point. And also related to the debt conversation, like how much stress does that put on a marriage? If you're someone who wants to save and they're not, you know, and it's like, okay, this is part of who they are, but it's also very stressful for me to see this, this debt here, the savings here. And so you've got to work it out somehow. Yeah, it is a stressful conversation. I think one of the one of the important aspects that you're managing when you're managing money and how you're spending money is is just everybody's quality of life. And I think it's important when you're talking about having kids, getting married, paying down debt and saving money is like, you know, how can we what what are the things that we care about in life and how can we maintain the things that we value? while at the same time trying to progress towards a more financially independent future, right? And I think that's important for both parties, right? Like if you get married, that may change things. If you're living together, if you have kids, you know, are you going to, is somebody going to be taking care of the kids during the day? Are they going into daycare? You know, what's the expectations around what you're doing in your life, you know? And I think that's been a really big kind of discovery in my own marriage with my wife, Anna, where, you know, we both wanted to have kids. We had kids early and young. And now as they're growing, like it's, it's becoming clear that Anna is anxious for more interaction and responsibility in life outside of just raising the kids, right? Which is kind of um, the paradigm she was taught growing up is like, you become a mom and then you're a mom and like, that's kind of it. And she's finding like being a mom is is great, but there's more, there's more of me to give and more to be involved with in life. And I think that is very closely related to the discussion of finances, because your money is what enables those types of lifestyle choices. And so I think for me that I I think that's been something I've learned where I've always been able to say like, yeah, I like numbers are easy for me. It's easy to say like, yeah, we should have savings or we should make this decision on interest or credit or, or those are easy. But the, the thing that you have to weigh into that is how does that affect your lifestyle? How does that affect your marriage and what things do some of you care or maybe one spouse cares more about than another? And you can you can find ways to have both people live a really fulfilling life while at the same time trying to press forward towards financial independence. Yeah, I think that all speaks so much to, you know, that on paper, you can kind of have these certain goals, but at different points in your relationship or as your lives change, you know, some of those may have to give depending on kind of what you're prioritizing or, you know, what makes sense at the time. Like, I think, you know, for Adam and I, well, one in the very beginning, again, we were young and I think just really prioritizing like life experiences. You know, we moved to LA for like a couple of years, just kind of for the thrill of it. And, um, you know, that was not financially like a great decision, (laughs) you know, a cross country move there and back is, is super expensive, but we still are like, no, I wouldn't change that for anything. Like we took a, you know, cross country road trip both ways. And it's still like some of our favorite memories. Um, but those were certainly a handful of years where we also were not saving anything. I mean, we were like eating quesadillas for dinner every day. Like that. Um, so, you know, it's, I think you kind of pick and choose. And then as you get older, you're like, okay, we have to create a little bit more balance. But also for us, we knew we wanted to kind of 
have a lot of experiences before we had kids. We did not want kids young. I think that was actually probably more me, but, you know, wanted to kind of prioritize my career and and certain other experiences. So, you know, later down the line where we're kind of in one of your positions where we have a couple kids, you know, things will shift again, but. Yeah, that's a good story. I think that really indicates like how sometimes there's like more value to get out of life by spending money than there is value to be had by having that extra money, right? And th- this is an interesting one. Well, discussion is, why did you buy that? Why did you decide to move across the country and spend that money? Yeah. And was it worth it? So when you reflect on that, do you think it was worth it? The LA trip? Oh, yeah, for sure. We actually didn't live together until we set out cross country. So like, we got in the car together. I mean, we had been dating, I guess, about a year. And then I was living in New York. He's originally from Pennsylvania too. So it was kind of like, are you going to move here to New York with me or should we go somewhere else? You know, and I kind of knew New York is like my forever home. But at that time at like what, 24, 25, like, well, we've got a couple of years. Want to just, you know, pick a place and, and go try that out for a while. And so, yeah, we, we, you know, got in the car and that was like day one of living together was day one on the road, um, two weeks out to LA in the car together and then, you know, lived together once we got there and then have obviously lived together ever since. Um, so it, it worked out. Okay. It was, it was a little bit risky both financially and, um, relationship wise, but, uh, we had a good feeling about it, I guess. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. And number six is managing money together. Do we want to fully combine finances or keep some accounts or funds separate? So when I think about this, everything in one joint account that all the money's coming out of, or potentially, I guess you could have two s- separate accounts and be spending out of them separately. Or I can imagine a scenario where you're doing a hybrid where you have one account that a lot of things are coming out of, but then you also have your separate bank accounts. So Dan, how did you approach it? How do you approach it? Yeah. So we've always had a shared account, you know, since we were starting from scratch, that just made sense. And actually, now that I think about it, I I do kind of remember this thought when we were first getting going, like, do, do I need to have a separate bank account? What would that look like? But having been married now for 11 years, I I can't imagine having separate accounts or even having like a shared account and then your own accounts, unless maybe you were each getting like the same amount of kind of personal allowance into like a separate account that you could spend. But I can't imagine a scenario where like if one person earns more, they have more money to spend or if like the rent's coming due and there's not enough money in the shared account and you have money in your personal account. It's like, I don't understand really how that would work. I'd be interested to talk to anybody who's kind of tried to keep their finances separate. And if that would work, it seems like you'd run into so many problems. Jess, are you someone who can talk, speak to this? (laughs) I I think a little bit. Um, Well, first of all, you know, right now we, Adam and I have separate accounts, you know, since we're not married yet. But that being said, we treat our money as if it's kind of one big pool. So just like you were saying, Dan, like whichever one of us earns more, they don't get a weighted, like more to spend mm-hmm. that week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we just consider it all our money and split it down the, the center. But that being said, you know, I feel like, especially in New York where people don't tend to get married very young. So are sometimes more of that merger mentality coming into relationships you know, I've definitely had friends who kept their accounts separate after they got married or, um, kind of were a little bit more, 
I don't know, drew, drew a line kind of between their accounts, um, more. And I've also had my sister actually, which I'm sure she won't mind me sharing this story, hopefully, but, um, she's married now, but an earlier boyfriend and her had joint accounts, like they combined before they were married and, um, it ended kind of poorly and he ended up taking the money out of that joint account. I mean, she never got it back. Oh no. So yeah. I, and that happened, um, I think I was still in college, but I feel like it really kind of stuck with me. Like, wow, that's crazy dangerous to do um, before marriage then. He just took the money. He was <laughs> yeah. like, this is all mine. Mine. Yeah. Take it. It, it wasn't a great breakup. <laughs> what was his justification? Oh, yeah. Being a bad guy, I guess. I. It was, yeah, it wasn't pretty. Um, mm, just, mm, that's brutal. Yeah. <laughs> it was. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, they had a dog together and she did get to keep the dog. So that was, but that's an oh. expense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Does she like look at the dog and just get filled with anger towards her old boyfriend or is, or is it? Good? No, I think, yeah, she, she's so happy that she got okay, him. Okay. Um, well, she got the cool. dog. He's, he's still chugging along all these years oh, later. Man. So yeah. <laughs> he, he outlasted the boyfriend. <laughs> wow. Um, so listen, I, I gotta ask: Was it <laughs> what was the amount we're talking about? Was it? <laughs> is that, I was, that right you. You? Okay. I was not gonna ask. Not a, <laughs> that's my. If job. it was hers, I feel like it'd be fair. But it's her sister's. <laughs> that's true. Don't answer it if you don't. No, look. no, no. Listen, she's she's very open to her mind. And again, it worked out. She married the right guy. She's fine. She's li- living a great life. It was. I want to say less than five thousand dollars. But at the time, you know, it was kind of a, her first out of college, like I'll say, quote unquote, serious relationship. It felt like a lot of yes. money. And, you know, we were all really upset when it happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was just kind of one of those early moments where I was like, oh, I'm going to tuck that in my pocket, <laughs> not, yeah. not to make the same mistake. Okay. So no, no joint account for Adam until... Yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> and that's like not why. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that either one of us would ever. You know, I know, I know. I'm just again. teasing. But, I'm just teasing. Yeah, no, but you know, that's I think it's, it influences. Yeah, what you see around you influences how you behave with money, right? And you're just like, oh, right. that's a, something yeah. maybe I don't want to do. Well, I was just going to say, it does beg the question at what point do you feel like 100% secure with someone else having total access to your money, right? And like, I guess I could see that as kind of a, a phased process, maybe where like you get married and maybe you're well established and you have $200,000 in the bank and your spouse doesn't have nearly as, as much money. And it's not like you're, you're not in a situation where you have any trouble, like paying your bills and you're both kind of spending the same, but I could maybe see that like, you know, you're just kind of holding on to it and it's there until maybe you need it or something, but yeah. I mean, what's interesting right now is that actually I have all of our savings accounts in my name. So like we jointly share hypothetically share money, you know, but the savings account, just because I already had it set up, you know, they, they were already in my name. So we just put the money into that. So technically I could be the one to run away guys. We should put more in savings. I think. <laughs> I wonder, uh, do either of you know what the legal stance is? Like if, both of you are contributing to an account that's in one of your names and you get divorced. I assume there's like, 
I don't know. I, well, I, I don't know, I guess if it's like, it's that person's money cause it's in their account or if there's more to it than that. I think there's more to it. The assets that are accrued while you're married, unless there's a prenup belong to the couple. Oh, really? And, and will be split 50, 50 if there's a divorce. Ah. So it doesn't really matter in the long term. It doesn't really matter if it's only in your, in your name, other mm -hmm. than, you have the most easy access to it in the temporary, but I'm assuming I'm not a divorce lawyer, but I'm assuming if you got divorced, there would be a lot of disclosures and you would need to proffer as that's a word, the bank account statements. Yeah, and that would yeah. be part of the assets. And then yeah. you would divide it up and then there would be a court order and you would need to fork over half of it. I mean, that's yeah. the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Well, you weren't quite off that easy, Jess. Sorry. But you're not married yet, so maybe <laughs> you could still get away I with know. it. <laughs> it's my loophole. <laughs> I do remember early on, like, adding Tracy to my savings account when we were young in our marriage. And there was not much money in the account. If I remember right, it was like 1300 bucks. But at the time is what we had. Yeah, and, yeah. and I added her to the account. And I was like, something just happened there, you know? <laughs> Something important just happened there, and I, I'm mean, fine with it. But that was a that's a, that's the difference when you start sharing money like that. Oh, one other thought I want to say is that um, while I've been a big proponent for having one account that we both spend out of, I've started to wonder if there's something to be said for having a separate account for allowances, like in, what we may term as an allowance, like discretionary spending. Because in a marriage, it's important to kind of keep your own identity. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's what's unique about you is what you're bringing to the marriage, right? You, you, you sort of, it's good to have your own personality. And in terms of if having your own separate accounts for just regular spending or doing whatever you want to without someone, you know, necessarily seeing or whatever, and it helps you with the differentiation, you know, maybe that's a good strategy for that. But it would have to be if I visualize this, something where the majority of everything's just coming out of one. And then like you were saying, there's some sort of discretionary spending allowance that gets spent without the other person necessarily having to see. I don't know. Just a thought. Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. In fact, I, I want to uh, build a similar feature into weekly to support something like that, where you can kind of get money siphoned off to both parties and then they can do whatever they want with it. Because there are things that come up like buying buying a gift or something right that you that you don't want the other person to know about mm -hmm. and if like everything is totally shared yeah now do you think that okay if you have these kind of separate you know autonomous allowance accounts i'll call them would you still check in if the purchase were over a certain threshold like let's say you know <laughs> if for twenty dollars you're not mentioning <laughs> you know but if it hits like two hundred I don't know. You know, yeah. is is there a level that you would be like, even though the money would be hypothetically there, you're not overspending right, technically, right. but what kind of size purchase would you tell the other person about? I have to turn no. that question around and say, mm -hmm. like, what is it that you are like trying to uncover here? <laughs> no, nothing. I'm just curious. <laughs> Uh, just as like, you could have your own free spending buddy, but not if you're going to spend more than $200 on one item. Okay. Then you gotta, you gotta mess up. What are you spending on? Unless it's a gift for me, in which case it can be kept secret. 
<laughs> oh, that's awesome. You're going to buy that thing, buy it in like in increments of 20 so I can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do payments, a payment plan. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be surprised if I ever spent, you know, $200 or more without my wife like knowing about that, right? It seems like a purchase like that has yeah. enough impact on your life where you're either talking about it or thinking about it and and sharing it, right? But I guess if you were spending hundreds of dollars and your spouse had no idea, there might be something going that's, on. That's problematic, yeah. Maybe you're onto something there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in this hypothetical, I guess if it was this account that was your free spending money, I guess that would be your account to spend if it that would be it. Because you'd already, you'd already allocated it, right? The money was there. Right, yeah. Like yeah. Saved it up. That's the part. It's like, you don't get to judge. <laughs> oh, that's funny. You could just save up for months and months and months and then go out of town for a week. <laughs> See ya. I'm going on vacation. <laughs> okay. So the, the uh, final one is other financial obligations. Do you have financial obligations outside of yourself, such as supporting a child? I mean, you would probably want to talk about that before you got married, I would think. <laughs> Like, oh, we're married. Oh, by the way, <laughs> there's this child I need to support. What? Um, <laughs> or running a business? Like, you would think you would discuss that before marriage. Could your parents, siblings, or other family members need financial assistance from you in the future? I think that's a good question, actually. That is a good question. Yeah. How do you figure that out? Like, I think really the underlying question here is a question of boundaries, right? And like, what are you willing to support? And like, I would think most people would be willing to help and support family in in some kind of need or emergency, but that's different than being willing to like support a lifestyle for somebody who's capable of supporting themselves, right? So I think, I think that would be an important conversation. Yeah, I think um, that's a big one and one that definitely I don't think came up at all like early in the early years, I would say, but a couple of years ago, my grandfather got sick and, you know, I saw how much my parents had to really help support that process, you know, through the end of his life. And it did kind of spur some of those conversations for us too, you know, okay, we both have one sibling, how, you know, down the line, how would that potentially look? Or you don't want anyone who's just like, oh, I'm going to let my brother sleep on our couch forever and <laughs> we're mm -hmm. going to support him. But yeah, I, I feel like those things are really important to kind of be at least someone on the same page, even though you can't predict the future, you know, you, you want to know that you have kind of a, a similar outlook on, you know, how that would play out. This episode is brought to you by weekly, our app that helps you stick to a budget. It's in the Apple iOS app store. You can also find us at weeklybudgeting.com. We have a completely different take on budgeting. The traditional method is to operate on a month, to put everything into categories and subtract the money out of categories. But this ends in frustration for lots of people because they get halfway through the month. They may have overspent or underspent a category. They're not sure where to grab the money from. Oh, by the way, does this sound familiar? Hey, honey, where's the target receipt? I'm trying to figure out if that is a household expense or a food expense. It's just a disaster. So then you end up at the end of the month. You're not sure what happened and you just give up. So we've come up with a different way, which is to operate on a weekly basis. We take your recurring income, your recurring expenses, we subtract your expenses from your income, and then we come up with what you can safely spend for a week. Then we keep you in touch with that number 
downloading your transactions from the bank so that you can always know what is safe to spend. This alleviates the guilt of spending and lets you spend with more joy. So we hope you give the app a try. Um, you can go to weeklybudgeting.com, click on the icon, go to the app store. You can also search in the app store for weekly budget or weekly budgeting. Right now we're at the top of the organic rankings for that and give it a try. Let us know what you think and welcome to the podcast and welcome to the weekly community. Hi, we'd like to welcome to the pod Sandra Merrill and Chris Zimmerman of Swell Advisors. Swell Advisors is a bookkeeping and financial services business that specializes in social entrepreneurs, B corporations and nonprofits and brands who are out to use the power of business for good. They're also a husband and wife team that has spent a year and a half in pursuit of the best surf from around the world. And thank you for coming on and talking to us on Why'd You Buy That? Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Yeah. How you doing, guys? Thank you. It's, uh, it's our pleasure. So today we're talking about money conversations you should have with your significant other before you get married. And it strikes me that for you in particular, you are dealing with this like on three levels, right? You are dealing with on a personal level, I imagine, you know, the conversations between yourselves, husband and wife, right? And then you're also having to manage money in the business. And there's a business relationship between the two of you, I'm assuming, and then on a third level, you're dealing with other people and helping them manage their money. And so you're sort of seeing these relationships and intricacies play out dynamically on several levels, probably at the same time, I'm imagining. So I'm wondering for you guys, did you have conversations before you got married about money? We definitely have had conversations about money, our whole relationship. So I'll give a little bit of backstory. Um, we both come from families that are very open about money. And I think that one of the strong suits of our relationship is just that we were pretty aligned in how we treat money. So just you know, kind of spoiler alert, this is not a big touch point for us, which I guess makes sense since we've then gone into an industry that's so money related, but it's not something that we have really struggled to make sense of as a couple and business owners working together. But we were together for, let's say eight years before we got married. And then we've in total, we've been together for, I think, 17 years now. So We've had a, like a long uh, runway of a lot of open conversations and we just really tackle things in the moment when they come up. We're not really kind of letting them build up to a point that they're problematic. So we're, we just openly are talking about, you know, our opinions about how we're spending our money, how it goes back to a reflection of our values and what we care about. And that's something that I think started pretty much from the beginning of our relationship. So but it is true. We, there's a lot of layers to it, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I guess the question is, uh, when you're beginning a relationship, how much debt are you bringing to the table, and how much love are you bringing to the table? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Balance those up. <laughs> it sounds like so you were pretty in sync with each other from the get-go. But if you had to label the values that were in sync pretty automatically, how would you label those? It sounds like one openness, right? Yeah, directness, openness, really um, not allowing money to be something that 
you hold against the other person. I think money can really be like a power player in dynamics. And that is not something that either of us really have have na- naturally. We don't do that, but we also haven't used that as something to like hold over the other person in our relationship. I think that a big piece of it is that we're both pretty like simple minimalistic in how we look at spending. So we try to think about what we really, you know, our priorities in at this point in our life, I would say priorities are around like financial freedom, saving money, making decisions that are in the long, like in the long run going to really benefit our life. But we also, you know, you mentioned that we, spent this period of time where we were traveling, which is in the not so, it's pretty recent actually, like within the last year and a half. And at that time, we really changed our spending habits a lot. We went from living in an expensive city where we both, you know, had jobs that were more, you know, high paying jobs. And our spending was totally different than when we went into this period of time where we were traveling. And we really decided we wanted to like kind of compress our spending into what what are we trying to do here we want the opportunity to travel to have all of these experiences that are important to us and therefore we're going to spend really differently um so i think your question was about values and and what they are and i don't know chris do you have other things to add that i didn't hit on there well i think we made our money together we worked together when we first met we worked in a restaurant and all our time together we've worked together and we've pulled our money. So therefore, it's not like one of us was the big breadwinner and the other was not. We were kind of a good team, pair, partner right from the very beginning. So it was easy. So when that decision came down the pipe about, listen, we we want to stop living the big city life. We want to do something completely different. Were you guys both all in immediately on that? Or was that like, well, I'm not sure. Was there, how, how did you arrive at that decision? Sandra was getting a little itchy. I had done a bit of traveling beforehand and I was content. We were living in New York and Sandra approached me and said, there's got to be more to it than this. And uh, she's always been an outdoors person and it's a big world. So she brought it to me and dumped it on my plate and <laughs> not didn't dump it on my plate, but she was the one that suggested it. So, mm-hmm. And I'm always up for an adventure. So I was, if it's good for you, it's good for me. Mm-hmm. Did you save up to take this trip or did it happen pretty much immediately? It probably was like about, I don't know, a year and a half lead up to when we really were like, okay, I think we're going to do this. And when we actually left. So it definitely was something that we planned for and not only in saving, but just understanding like what we wanted to get out of the whole experience and you know, I was in a position where I felt a lot of responsibility. And so was Chris, actually, we both were very connected to our jobs. So we wanted to make sure that like we did right by the companies we were working for. So it definitely wasn't like an instantaneous thing. It was something I would say more that like grew over time and then became clear, okay, we're going to do this. And how are we going to do it in a way that's really like respecting our lives and, you know, what we're looking to experience next. Did you start Swell Advisors before you left? We did not, no. Okay. Um, Swell Advisors sort of came out of that experience. Uh, We had an idea, you know, after this period of travel, we knew we wanted to start a business and we were thinking about also, like, we really wanted to work together. We had come out of a time where we were so intertwined, like our lives were incredibly woven in 
you know, being together literally every day and in this period of travel, but also just like coming travel comes with a lot of like interesting challenges. You're like, you're out of your comfort zone. You're constantly figuring out, you know, where you fit in the scheme of things. And I think we were both really enjoying being in it together in in a very new way than we had been before. And we wanted to take that energy and momentum and bring it to a business that we could run together. So on top of that, we both have a lot of experience in the space that we're working now. And we wanted to specifically work with more environmentally friendly businesses. So it's just sort of like the ideas, the puzzle came together in a way that felt really good, especially coming out of that experience. You know, the um, you might have heard it, traveling kind of can make or break a relationship, especially <laughs> if it's extended period. You know, it brings you tighter together or it kind of says, okay, you go your way, I'll go my way. Traveling can do that to, to people. Yeah. So did you go on this trip with the idea that you're going to start a business when you come back or did that idea hatch organically while you were traveling? The second one. The second one. Okay. So how has the process of starting and running a business together in a relationship worked? Has it been what you thought it would be or is it more challenging or less challenging? I mean, it has its challenges, but Sandra and I work well together on a professional level and then also as a as a couple. So surprisingly, it has not been as a whole as challenging as I thought it would be. Uh, you have to be patient. You know, you can't, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, so to speak. But Sandra is a terrific partner and it hasn't been as challenging as I had imagined. So as professional financial advisors, how do you manage money in, in your relationship? Do you guys do weekly budgeting or monthly budgeting or do you put things into categories or you're not so concerned? How do you guys deal with what you spend? If you don't mind me asking. No, not at all. The pod. <laughs> I would assume that. We are all, why'd you buy that? So. <laughs> um, so right, I would say now, meaning in this phase of time, we use like a zero-based budget concept. So we basically are budgeting all of the money that we make towards various things, some fixed, some variable expenses. But I think underlying a big piece of the equation for us is that we prioritize saving before spending. So obviously we know fixed expenses, but then we make sure that our savings goals are kind of the next line item for us as opposed to letting expenses happen and then the savings being whatever is left over. So that's a big priority lens that we take in our personal lives, also with the businesses that we work with. There's a concept called Profit First, which is like it's a business book and it's something that is used for like cash management, cash allocation. But it's essentially that idea that you want to take the money that comes in and say, hey, like my profit or my savings, these are key. These are more important to me than these extraneous expenses. So that's going to come first. And that's really how we're managing our money. We do have categories as well. Like you specifically asked about that. So yes, there are categories in there, but I think managing the actual money that you make, not this potential money that you might make, that's I think important with the concept of zero-based budgeting. So to drill down on that profits first. So if your business makes a thousand dollars and you're expecting a 
12% profit margin, are you saying that you would take that out of the gross before calculating your expenses? Is it, did I understand that right? The model, actually what it says is, this is really for business, but I guess it could apply to personal also. You basically, instead of having one operating bank account for your business, you have an operating bank account, then you have a bank account that you would put, let's say, your owner's pay and separate bank account for your savings. And when money, money comes into the business, you immediately transfer out percentages based on whatever your allocation is. So let's say 20% is going to go towards savings. So you immediately pull that 20% out and move it into your savings account so that you're not touching it and you have to force the expenses to work with what you've decided that percentage that you want to allocate towards operating expenses are. Okay, cool. How did um, going on this year and a half long traveling spree affect your spending? You mentioned that it, that it affected it. I'd imagine there'd be some things that would be, you know, expensive, like the actual plane tickets and, and traveling around, but then other things you, I'm sure you'd be trying to save money because you're not working. So how did that kind of play out? I need to brag a little bit, Dan. The trip was planned for 12 months, a year, but we came under budget. Oh, so we nice. Yeah. <laughs> so we extended, we extended. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So we were lucky enough during our trip traveling, we did this program called Work Away, and it's where you volunteer your time for work in exchange for accommodation and food. And you get to rub shoulders and live with the locals. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I'd highly recommend it. And uh, we did that in, in about a year and a half. We traveled to about 12 countries. We didn't do that in every country, but we did it in, in a lot of them. And it was that offset our expenses. Yeah, that's huge. So that's a, a broader program that's like multinational. And it's through the same organization you were able to do that in multiple countries that's pretty cool and it's a fast track to get to know people locals you get mm -hmm. a quicker flavor for a place and it was a great experience it was yeah that's what is it what kind of work uh, were you doing in the different places so we did in nicaragua we work in a surf camp in guatemala we pick coffee organic beautiful coffee in India, we worked on a couple permaculture farms. Uh, we worked with a program that wanted to enhance the lives of underprivileged kids. We worked in Sri Lanka for a guy that was developing his website and wanted to do some, he wanted to develop tourism in his town. So we helped him with a little of that. And what else am I forgetting, Sandra? No, those are the key ones. So yeah, we, we would basically join on for two projects and it was a really interesting experience because we got to like see these local businesses and or, you know, farms, different things like totally outside of the realm that we were otherwise working in. And leading up to the trip, I had basically researched all the places that we were planning to go and figured out what I thought like a daily budget that we were going like super basic to begin with but figured out what I thought a daily budget would look like. And then because we did this program, we really, in many places, like we just didn't spend money. Like we were in a rural place. And so we were working for this, a family or a business or whatever the situation was. And then we just got to like get in there and it drastically cut down on what we had to spend. And that's why we could 
go for longer than we initially thought was possible. Yeah, that is amazing. I think like in addition to the savings, kind of like you're talking about, Chris, the the cultural experience you'd have there would be so much richer than just the, kind of the tourist flavor you'd get going to some resort or something. Oh, absolutely. It was really wonderful. People really open up their, their homes, their families, and they're very, very warm and welcoming. The world's a nice place. <laughs> That's so cool. If you had to rank the places as far as bang for your buck in terms of where you went, where would you say like you were just astounded by the value that you got versus things being more expensive or more inefficient? We were in so many countries that are really inexpensive. Like when you compare, I mean, basically in a year and a half, we didn't spend even close to what our annual rent is for our apartment in New York City for our whole life. Like we chose to travel more like local methods, buses, et cetera. Like we definitely were going the more budget route, but I guess India would probably be the least expensive place that we spent time. I mean, the two of us could eat like a really nice, not nice in fancy restaurant, but nice and great quality food uh, for like $2 each, like all together, sorry, a dollar each. Wow. And, but we also, we chose when we were renting places, we would often stay somewhere that had a kitchen. We would shop in local markets. We cooked a lot. So, I mean, we made a lot of decisions that kept our budget and like we tracked everything. So we knew exactly where we were at at any given point. We had a little app on the phone and we tracked almost every dollar. It was, it's pretty accurate and it worked well. It was, it was a simple app and it worked well and it was a great tool for this job. So then in your business, you were helping people manage their finances and what financial ticks and trips or pointers that now that you're seeing inside of other people's businesses, do you think would help them the most? I think that a lot of new business owners, if they've come from a track where they're used to getting a paycheck, like a W-2 paycheck with taxes taken out, it's a big learning curve for people who have, you know, an LLC to get used to the fact that they have to pay taxes after like the money that comes in is not taxed. And I think a lot of new business owners really get surprised by that if they're not aware. And so then, you know, come end of the year, they're like, Oh no, like I owe $10,000 in taxes. I wasn't prepared. So I would say a big tip would be really on a monthly basis moving the money that you owe for taxes into an account so you're prepared and you're not surprised. And if you don't actually owe all of that in taxes at the end of the year, now you have a bonus to pay yourself. So it's really a a much better strategy than kind of, I think people just fly by the seat of their pants a lot. I mean, and and that's part of entrepreneurship. You learn along the way. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think having a basic knowledge of how whatever the entity type you are impacts your taxes is super important to not be in a bad position down the line. I mean, separating business from personal is super basic, but it's something we see time and time again, just like doesn't happen as easily for smaller businesses. That is so essential to just being able to know what's happening in your business. If you're mixing all of your personal stuff in with your business, it's just too hard to see one from the other. And then, of course, like taxes and things of that, that nature get complicated. But I think just even as a like 
a person operating a business, you need to understand the money in and out and how that flows. And if your personal life is mixed in, it gets really muddied. Yeah. And just to add on to that is you need a certain level of organization. So if you can write things down, the more you're only as good as your data. So the more data that you have, then you can make a more informed decision. So you need to be organized and organize yourself in a certain way that you that you can make a wise decision from the data that you have. Well, like if you're a new business from the bookkeeping side of things, because that's what we're doing, even if you're just tracking it all in a spreadsheet, that's fine. It's not, there's nothing wrong with like simple spreadsheet tracking, but I think with time and more complexity, like you do want to move towards some sort of software that is going to make it automated, take less time, like feed in information from your bank accounts, like enable you to just much more easily make sense of what's happening. So, I mean, that's definitely a recommendation that we have. And it's not like, even if you're doing it yourself, it's not like you can't figure it out. You can have, you know, a CPA or something on the side that's helping you with some of the initial setup. But I definitely think that There are a lot of people who are like creative and, you know, that's maybe not their forte. I think knowing your strengths is important. And if one of them is not managing finances, finding help is really key. I mean, same with us. Like we know there are certain things we're better at in our business and the ones that are not either a strength or we don't really enjoy, our aim is to find a partner, outsource something where we're going to be able to say, hey, take this off my plate and utilize my strengths to the best that I can build my business and also like enjoy my life. A lot of business ownership can be intense and there's a lot of elements that you need to, you're running simultaneously. So knowing what you want to be spending your time on is really important to not feel burnt out. And like the long road for me is key. So what are we aiming at? And then taking some away, gaining from other places. Back to the trip for a second. You were living uh, in a big city, a more expensive life. You went on a trip where everything was much more minimalistic, I guess, if I'm hearing that correctly. And then you can't, you've come back. Were you changed, essentially? Were there things that happened on the trip that now when you came back, you, you changed how you spend or how you saw money? I think when I was talking about um, that this sort of idea grew over time to take this trip and to make this, this life change... A big part of it is that I was interested in experiencing what is my happiness level when there's not as much like fast pace, noise, that kind of, you know, distraction. And I think having the experience of that, like slow down and really get to, I don't know, just be pulled outside of your comfort zone on, on like every day in many ways that has lasted. And, you know, a lot of the business that we started We started in part because we want to have a remote business that we can still do things like this. So if you're talking about influence, like, yeah, we did prioritize this as part of our lifestyle for the future and for what we want to build and what's important to us. But spending wise, I mean, sure. I mean, we, we, at this point, we really buy like most of our stuff secondhand. We're not, I just think like consciousness around what it means to not buy frivolously and feel like things aren't that valuable knowing where the materials come from looking at the environmental piece of it like all of that is really 
influential in how we spend money now. And definitely that is a thread that carried from that experience. It was there before, but it got deepened. I just wanted to add, we knew this kind of before, but this really hit at home is we're more of the people of having experiences over material things and traveling really opened up our eyes to that and going forward in our life, I would much choose an experience over purchasing an item. Yeah, that's a powerful thing to be aware of. I think we grow up in a very materialized world and it's hard sometimes to say like, hey, you know, there's other options. Yeah, absolutely. And advertising does it to us and and, um, social pressures do it to us. But yeah, absolutely. I think kind of similar to what you were just saying, Dan, I think it, it was an interesting lesson in that you can always choose something different. You can choose a different path. You can you know, change your life pretty drastically in a short amount of time. And obviously we were in a position where we didn't have children. Like we ha- we could maybe more easily separate ourselves from where we had been. But I think not that it's so specifically financial, but it is in some ways because it's what you're spending your life doing and money is tied to that. And I think just recognizing like just because there's a prescribed path that people tend to live and see around them like you're when you're growing up i mean in this year and a half we saw people living so many different lifestyles that it just kind of cracked us open to say like hey you can really do whatever you want there's no limitation you just have to dream and have a vision for where you want to go can you share a lifestyle that you saw that really kind of opened your eyes to that on your trip? A lifestyle you saw on your trip that really opened your eyes to the possibilities? Often you'd see maybe three generations of family living in, you know, at the one house and they all contribute and the grandparents might be looking after the, the young kids. Everyone's preparing the meals together. Everyone enjoys the traditions, the music and the dance and the certain each culture is a little different than whatever's unique to that culture. But the tightness of the family is probably one that stands out to me. Often in small spaces, they don't have big homes. It's so powerful. It's it's kind of the opposite of like the American dream, which is like buy a big house and live on your own and be independent. I'm sure that was pretty a stark contrast to see that in, in many other countries. Yeah, yeah. And kind of building off of that, interestingly, when we when we were kind of coming to the end of this period of travel and we knew we wanted to start our business, we're like, okay, well, for the first six months, we don't know how much money we're going to have coming in while we're beginning this. Like, let's go stay with family and get our business going and have the opportunity to also like enrich our relationships with the with our family that we haven't seen as much recently because we've been in this period of travel. So I think that's like an influence that instead of feeling like, is this a reflection that we're not like on the right track and we're not doing enough? And, you know, we were just like, no, this is actually an opportunity to both build a business that we're excited about, also spend time with people that we really love and care about. So I think that not being influenced by what it means to make it, I just sort of have like thrown that out and I just want to make it on terms that feel good to me, good to Chris and build a life that we're excited to live. And for that, for us, a lot of it is about freedom and the ability to live in different places. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, it is weird to think that there's this idea of, well, what you're supposed to do is raise your kids. And then they, then they leave, I have kids, you know, they leave the house and then they go live in these cities. And then 
then what? Like you don't see them anymore. Like <laughs> they're all out there. It's weird that that has developed as the kind of idea of American success. Am I right? Yeah. What I see. Yeah. So I want to ask you about sustainability because I, uh, my understanding is that's a value that you hold and I would be interested in knowing, are there, what are the, like the, the lowest hanging fruit type of choices that you've made that you feel have had the most impact, positive impact on sustainability in our personal lives you're talking about here, right? Yeah. Business too, I guess, but personal is what I was thinking. I think like real low hanging fruit for everybody is composting. Just, we all have a lot of garbage and so much of it really is not garbage. It can go towards regenerating soil. And so if you're composting, instead of putting that in a landfill where it doesn't break down and that then turns into greenhouse gases, and that's just a very simple change that you can make. And, you know, if you live in a home with space around you, it's really just a matter of separating veggies, fruit, eggs, paper, things that can easily be composted, having that at your home in the outside somewhere. And then that can be used for like a garden or, you know, just it's a cycle that's circular as opposed to ending in something that is a negative for the environment. So that's like a very easy one. I got one. The, I mean, a low, a low hanging fruit is bring a bag with you. Whenever you go out, go shopping, bring a bag with you. There's no need to take bags anymore. You know, reduce packaging. And what was a harder choice? Like, what was something you say, I'm going to do this. It's going to hurt me financially, but this is something I want to do because I believe that we need to lessen our impact on the earth. We're pretty, one of the things that we spend a lot of money on is food because we're making choices to buy like produce that doesn't have pesticides and chemicals. And that's, it is more expensive, but I think so often we're really short-sighted with how we look at expense. So, you know, yes, there is more of an upfront cost for this apple that's organic versus the non-organic one, but the long-term impact of choosing the non-organic where there's chemicals that impact your health and also are like depleting soil from nutrients, like these are long-term problems, which have a cost as well. You don't feel it up front in your pocket, but you do in the long run of your life and your experience. And if you value nature and respecting like the place that humans have in the total like animal kingdom, then I think it's a cost that kind of seems small in actuality. But yes, that is a cost. So like that's an expensive part of our budget and we're okay with that because that's a priority and we care about our health and feeling good. And I mean, we, we both do a ton of exercise. And so like we, that's, that's fuel that you're, you're choosing what you put in your body. So that's like a very personal choice, but I think a key one. On the other end of the spectrum, a bigger expense would be a vehicle. We don't have a vehicle right now, but you know, with, with all the batteries, right? Battery car, battery bikes, everything for people, that's going to be a decision to be made. You know, it might be costing a little bit more now. I mean, that price of all that's going to come down naturally. That's just something that just jumps to mind for me. I've got a, a question in terms of kind of lifestyle. How do you find success in keeping patterns as you've traveled so much? 
as I've traveled and as as my family has moved a number of times, I always find it's like it takes a while to get into a rhythm and to kind of figure out a routine, whether it's with exercise or eating or if you want to do things like composting. How do you kind of, you know, do your best to keep your patterns as you travel around? Yeah, I mean, sometimes better than others, I guess. I think that we are both actually pretty um, like I don't think either of us struggles to keep habits going so that it's some people are like really flighty and when their situation or their environment changes it's like a super quick thing and they get kind of lose track of what they are wanting to keep up but that's I don't think for us as much of an issue I guess it's really I mean you can really just like narrow down what are your priorities and say okay how am I going to make it work in this new place we hold each other accountable. It requires energy and some discipline and it, yeah, it's tiring sometimes and it requires that energy. We keep each other accountable. Sandra's called me out a few times when I've taken a bag or, <laughs> or purchased something with where I could have got it without the packaging is, is one example. So, mm-hmm. you know, we look at each other and, and we call each other out when it needs to be. Yeah, that's awesome. I like your uh, adjective of flighty. I think that's probably me. I'm like, I'm going to really hit this. And then like the next day, I just, I don't even remember the goal. It's just gone. (laughs) I relate to that. (laughs) I I, I feel like um, integrity is so key to living a life that brings you happiness. And I don't mean integrity towards other people. It's also towards yourself. So like the things that you... Like being honest, am I really committed to this thing? And if I am, then keeping it going because you care about your word to yourself. Maybe not thinking that you can do everything. Like you, it's be realistic with what's attainable and start with one thing and keep that going for a while and then add another. Because I think people bite off like a big bite and they don't actually know what to do with how to chew it, you know? So it's, it's better to stagger stagger your choices in a way that you can actually make happen so to wrap up i have a question which is on this trip you were spending a year and a half trying to pursue the best surf in the world so this is a two-part question one is can you describe what the ideal best surf looks like what it feels like and second what place got the closest for you australia baby just said you were going to say that (laughs) no only joking I mean an ideal day is no wind it's very still the water is glassy we describe it as glassy kind of like a mirror or a nice glass tabletop a couple friends and then you see a wave come and it starts to peel and it might be about as head high, as tall as a person. I mean, that that would I would describe that as a pretty good day. And we had some days like that in Sri Lanka. You asked before, um, people ask us all the time, "What's your favorite place?" And I would say, as a whole, for the for the surfing, for the food and the culture, it would be Sri Lanka. That's awesome. I I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, you know, you think surfing, you think Australia, Hawaii, you know, stuff like that. But we, we were lucky. You're at the mercy of Mother Nature. So, but we had a great time, I think, in Sri Lanka. Yeah. And the other thing is with surf, because like Chris said, you're at the mercy of Mother Nature. Like it, you can be in a really, a place that others would not think is like the surf spot. 
but then you just hit it on the right day and you have all the right conditions and everything lines up. So, I mean, we had an amazing surf, like probably week in Ecuador at a place that's not very well known at all. And it just was timing. Like we were in the right place at the right time, but probably like Indonesia is the one that I think stands out if we are thinking about just like top surf spots, because there's so much there and really incredible conditions. Was that the genesis of the name Swell Advisors? Don't isn't Swell something to do with surf? Yeah, we wanted we wanted a name that was like connected to nature in a way and like a power force of nature. Of course, we love surfing. We also really are positive people, and that's generally our outlook and how we approach life and business. And so, it checked both the boxes of having the positive feel and the nature element. That's fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Before you leave, though, if someone is interested in your services, where can they find you? You can go to swelladvisors with an S at the end.com. Um, we're also on Instagram at swelladvisors, Facebook, same name. So just check us out at swelladvisors.com. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on, and we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. It's great chatting with you. Thanks for having us. So before we wrap up, you guys, let's, uh, what do you say we do a round of why'd you buy that? So if you're new to the podcast, this is where we open our weekly trackers and we look at some purchase that we've made in the past week or two that is, has a story behind it or reflects some value, or we have some emotion behind, or we'd like to explain why we bought it. If it was a good purchase, bad purchase. And that's why'd you buy that? So who would like to go first? Dan, Jess? I can go. I'm ready to, I'm right. ready to roll. Good. I want to hear it. I know. So a couple of months ago, I was a flowboarding. If you know what that is, it's kind of like Do indoor not. surfing, yeah. sort of. They just have like this ramp, this kind of plastic ramp, and then they shoot water out of it at high speeds. And then you jump onto it with a board and you kind of like ride it like a wave. And then when you crash, the water's going fast enough and it pushes you up over the ramp and then you land on kind of this padded area in the back and then you climb down and go again, wow. which only is like partially related to the story that I'm actually getting at. So I was flowboarding. I have a brother-in-law who flowboards a lot. He told me to take my wedding ring off, but I didn't do it because I thought, meh, it's oh, going to no. be fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, my wedding ring got sucked off when I fell and it's it's gone. But the ring was not my original wedding ring. My original ring was just like a titanium ring. And then a few years ago, I got a, a silicone wedding ring, right? That's like much more flexible and it's cheaper and it's less irritating. And so it wasn't like a huge loss that the ring came off. But this week I bought a new ring and they sell these rings at just this kind of crazy different margins. You can buy like a dozen rings for like $5 on Amazon. Or you can buy like a single ring for like $30. So I've gotten the dozens pack before. And I found that I always only use like one of them because I just like that color the best. And the other thing about the cheap ones is that the edges are not as smooth. And so they can kind of irritate my finger for a while until it kind of rubs off like the more jagged edge and it's like smooth. So this time I thought I'm going to buy a nice one or let's just say a more expensive one and see if it's better. And so I did. I bought a more expensive one and it is better. It is better. I don't know that it's worth $30. 
I'll show you guys on the video. You won't be able to see this on the podcast, but it's okay. this bright orange ring and it is definitely smoother and it has a good fit. So actually, you know, I'm going to say, I'm going to say it's worth it because I hate the cheap ones that like that hurt for like two weeks when you wear them and then they're just not as high quality. This one has a lifetime warranty. So you're blowing you know. our minds, Dan. I haven't heard of like any of the things that seriously. <laughs> I got so many questions. I have so many questions. <laughs> Let's start with I bought a pack of wedding wedding <laughs> rings on Amazon. A pack. <laughs> a 12 a pack. pack. <laughs> a 12 pack of wedding. It's like you're supposed to have like one silver one or something. Like I what's know, going right? on? Yeah. So this is interesting. Tell me yeah. more about this. Your well, wedding uh, rings come in packs? It was kind of a jump from the titanium ring that I got when I got married, which was which also was not very expensive. I don't remember how much it was, but I think it was like under $100 or something. And then switching over, I also I I kind of have big knuckles, and so if you have a metal ring, you have to get a bigger ring to fit over your knuckles and then it's like loose on your hand. And so it just never really worked for me. So yeah, you know, a few years ago I switched over, but, and I haven't looked back. They are awesome. If you haven't ever worn one, I mean, if a metal ring doesn't bother you, then I don't know, maybe it's not a big deal, but. So, so do you, if you search for wedding rings on Amazon, will you get a pack of like multicolored rings? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. I, I don't know that these or are did you say you find these rings and you're like, this is a wedding ring. <laughs> <laughs> This okay. If you search ring, for wedding I'm rings, I'm gonna call it a wedding ring. <laughs> and and what did Anna say about it? I have so many questions. She's like, yep, that works. No, Anna's Anna's good with it. I love Anna. She's flexible and practical. <laughs> so she's she's good with it. And yeah, she she loves it. It's good. Okay, I've I have a question. Do you Taylor have too. your original band? No, I kept it for a while, but I'm in kind of a minimalist mode. I've talked to her about this a lot. It's so small. I know, but it's like, what do you do with it? Like, look at it. It's like, oh, remember when I put that on? I thought you lost lost it. The the ring I lost a couple weeks ago was a silicone ring. One of his Amazon. One of my Amazon rings. I switched over to the silicone rings. I hope they're made out of silicone. It's something like that. And then you got rid of your original one? Oh yeah, that that was long ago. I, it, there's, it's kind of like being the tooth fairy for your kids. You get these teeth and you swap it out with the money, and it's like part of their life. And then you have like this dead tooth, you know. And it's like, do you keep it? What do you do with that? You just throw it out, right? Hopefully. So I, I don't know. Kids I, tooth fairy is real. So the tooth fairy is real. I don't know what about. They bring they bring the money. That's how you know that it's real. That's right. But so go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted. So I just felt like the ring, I don't know. It just doesn't have a ton of sentimental value to me. The pictures of the wedding have a lot of sentimental value, but the ring, not so much. I have pictures of the ring. Actually, if I ever wanted to see it, I could look at it on the day I put it on. Okay. Okay. But isn't part of the ring <laughs> idea? Well, first of all, I have two more questions. Did you get this the silicone one that you have there blessed or whatever? Is it like... Isn't that what happens when you get married? They bless the rings. That's a good question. So I'm not sure about in other kind of churches or what's the word, the ceremonies and other ceremonies. I got married in uh, a temple, uh, a temple for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And in that, the ring exchange is actually separate from the ceremony. 
it's like not at all part of the vows or like binding your marriage. In fact, you step away from the altar when you exchange the rings and it's just totally a cultural thing, not at all part of the marriage vows. And okay, so, so maybe that factors in here. You know, if it were yeah. if it were to be really symbolic on the wedding day or something, I feel like maybe it would be harder later to kind of recycle it or whatever you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Actually, I hadn't even considered that. That like probably in a lot of other marriage ceremonies, it's like this ring is like the token of your vow or something. Yeah. So, do other people who grow up in your Faith also have colored Amazon marriage rings. <laughs> so sensitive. I know. I, I might listen to this in the future and be like, I cannot believe I was not more understanding about. No, that's a fair question. I actually, I'm surprised. So Jess, you said you, you've never heard of this, like somebody no. wearing a silicone band as a wedding ring. Have you heard of it, Drew? Have you heard no. of that before? No, I mean, I, oh, I, I've known you for a while now and I've seen those and I, I don't know, I mean, on your, on your hands and I was yeah. being like, oh, I don't know, maybe it was a replacement or something for a short period of time. I don't know what I thought really, <laughs> I really didn't give it much thought at all. Yeah, that's interesting because I feel like, I don't know, maybe it is a cultural thing, but I, I feel like it's not that uncommon, but I'm also in that space. I own one and it's just like when you buy something, you kind of recognize when other people have it, you know? So how much is having a wedding ring, like a signal that you're off the market? To other, to yeah, other that, women. I think that's a good question. I've been without a wedding ring for the last couple of months. Obviously, if it's COVID, so there's there's less going on. But I don't I don't think it's really had much of an impact, or I don't think it would. I don't know. Like I I don't go to a place where anyone would like pick up on me, and everyone that I I meet at like work or something knows in short order that I'm married. So. Well, I guess it was more like a question, also a question for Jess. Like if it is a signal, if you were a woman, you saw Dan with the silicone ring around his ring finger, <laughs> would you be like, that guy's married? <laughs> He's definitely married. <laughs> you know, I guess if it was on, on your ring finger, then I would. I, you know, it, it's funny that you say that because I wear a ring that was my great aunt's on my ring finger, like where I would wear a wedding band. And I have had people bring that up to me. I'll say, you know, like out at a bar or something. So I think some people do take stock of that and kind of um, see whether that's a symbol. But again, Dan, I think you have to be out in a place where like you're, you're not with your significant other. You're kind of in a place where people would be looking for something like that. Right. But yeah, that's, that's funny. Now that's I'm going to probably notice them everywhere. I just haven't yeah, seen them. I, no, I haven't thought about it before, but maybe guys all over the world are wearing them. Can we see it again? Like what color is your yeah. wedding ring? So, so this one is orange. <laughs> I kind of wish Bright it was orange. a mood ring that, you know, changed. <laughs> <laughs> the inside of it is, is blue. Actually, this one has these special uh, ridges on the inside. That's supposed to like let air through. And so it like doesn't get sweaty on your finger or whatever. You can get it inscribed, you know, it could be Anna and Dan Maybe forever. So. <laughs> and that Dan would be an added forever. expense for the disposable <laughs> five pack. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so much fun. Thanks for sharing that, man. You're welcome. <laughs> Who's next? Yes. Okay, I will go. All right. So my purchase uh, was for $18.35 and it's from the laundromat. And this is... A special purchase because 
well, first of all, we live in New York. We, we don't have a washer and dryer in our apartment. So that's to start. And usually we just take our laundry down to the laundromat. You know, you wait or, you know, you put it in, you do it yourself. And your other option is that you could send out your laundry, you know, have a service that either picks it up and drops it back off, or you can drop it off at the laundromat. They wash it for you and fold it. And then, you know, you pick it back up. And for whatever reason, we have always felt like the standard of like being well off here. Well, I guess first would be maybe having a washer and dryer in your apartment, but that's too lofty of a goal right now. <laughs> but it's, it's always been um, like that we would do the, you know, they wash it and fold it for you. It's not much more expensive, but it's enough where it felt like, oh, but we can kind of just do it ourselves. Can't we? Like we've just always done it ourselves. But during the kind of beginning of the pandemic here in New York, our laundromat closed and so did several others in our neighborhood. It was like a month and a half and we hadn't done laundry. It was getting really dire. And so we, I mean, I was like washing socks in the tub. It was, we were like pioneer people. And so we finally said like, listen, we've got to buck up and pay for the send out service. (laughs) So we did. And you almost can never go back because They fold things so perfectly. (laughs) It's like everything is just neat. And, you know, you're saving an hour and a half on a Saturday. So we have since kind of committed now to a lifestyle of our, you know, we do the drop-off service and they wash it for us. And we kind of have had the conversation, like, when are we going to stop this? Because we could go back to doing it ourselves, but we still have been doing the drop-off. Yes. A little luxury. (laughs) It's a lifestyle creep that you, I can imagine not being able to go back stop doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting discussion on like things you've told yourself. I know I'll be rich when mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. it was this, that's a great story. Like when I am, can afford the folding of clothes and the washing without even blinking an eye, that's yep. when I'm going to know that's the good life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, I get it. I mean, I, I've, I can see that. So anyway, worth it. I feel good about it. You know, saved my Saturday and did did the drop off for 18 bucks. Mm -hmm. I think one of those things for me was like, I like to eat sushi. I like it now. And I used to love it when I was younger. So I was like, when I can afford to have sushi for lunch any day that I want, (laughs) (laughs) that's when I'll know I've made it. So have you made it yet, Drew? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you, maybe uh, you could. It depends. The, the kid, do the kids need to go to college? I don't know. If they don't need no. to go to college, <laughs> yeah, I made it. <laughs> they can make it themselves. You made That's it. Right. You have hey, it. what? How much <laughs> am I obliged to do here? My why'd you buy that as an Apple bill for eight dollars and fifty nine cents? Although I thought it was seven ninety nine. I guess they add tax. I don't know. That would be weird. But this is for the Apple Arcade. So I have younger kids and they like to play apps and games on through the App Store. But you can get a bunch of free ones, right? You don't need to purchase this. But these free games, especially the ones for the kids, are just so aggressive in terms of how they they just load up with the ads. And then... Like you can get an, an interesting game, but, but they don't really have a filter on the ad. So it can quickly go from a sh- uh, like a sports game to, you know, a shoot the target game to a full out battle, uh, uh, you know, with blood and everything. You know, it's like mm-hmm. and they're just as like 
there's like seemingly no end to what they will just advertise to the to the kids. And so I was like, I need a way for them to play fun games and they can download as much as they want and I'll have to worry about the ads. And that was the solution. So Apple Arcade is now on the credit card. How has that gone since? Like, are your kids finding games that they enjoy playing? Uh, yeah, there's this one called Sneaky Sasquatch, which was a big hit. And it was like, you got to be the Sasquatch running around and get, getting food from picnic tables and stuff without people seeing you. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny and cute. Yeah. So there's been some there's been some good games. Yeah. The, the free ones still have draw, I think, though. I mean, it doesn't completely eliminate it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are they playing games with friends who they like can't see right now? Does any of that kind of factor into it? Like, are they playing more games because they're at home a lot? Or yes, they are. Uh, but the games with friends is Roblox, which is like similar to Minecraft, and that you build worlds, or there's worlds that exist, and then you're all these people in the worlds, and then you walk around. And Minecraft is like Legos and digital space, so you can quickly like build buildings and stuff like that, and then people can join you. So those, that usage of that is definitely kind of picked up and then trying to allow the kids to play together in these virtual worlds when they can't get together in real life because of the coronavirus that has, yeah, that's a thing. Yeah. And then also, um, there's also games like Jackbox games allow you as a family to play with other families through a digital platform. So we've also paid for that as well so that you can play games with your family members who are away and not have to get together physically in, in real life. That's cool. We we also got Apple the Apple Arcade subscription a few months ago for the exact same reason. Oh, okay. Because the advertising is just outrageous for kids. And and the other thing that just became a, a problem for us was that they would advertise other games that the kids would want, and they were the kids were just constantly asking to download more games and they'd play a game for 30 seconds they'd see an ad for another game and then want to move on and i'm just thinking this has got to be bad for your psyche you know you're just constantly like churning through different activities and never like diving into something more deeply so we're with you there yeah well let's bring it to a close people you guys rock thank you so much for coming on we'll talk to you soon any parting thoughts before we leave I don't know. Have all these conversations before you get married. These are important. (laughs) (laughs) Do your best. (laughs) But then take the plunge. (laughs) All right, y'all. Bye for now. All right, see ya. Type of girl and everybody